This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and four with six. Look around to the right when you balance. Look around to your right and you balance once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common, a spark, a desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to From the Mic. You know, one nice thing about the dance community is that sometimes it gives people a reason to travel. My friend Ben Sachs Hamilton and I both grew up and started dancing in Vermont, where I still live. And this past weekend, he was in town to call the Contra Dance in Montpelier. Of course, I asked him if he could stop by for an interview. Ben started Contra Dancing at age 12 and started teaching dances at 15. Since then, he's called and organized for dances across the Northeast, with a focus on LGBTQ and gender role-free dance communities. He fosters a welcoming and inclusive space for diverse groups of new and experienced dancers, adding tips on style and safety into his teaching. Ben currently lives in Western Massachusetts, but for our conversation, he joined me in my living room. Here's Ben. Ben Sachs Hamilton, hello, and welcome to From the Mic. Hi, Mary. It's so nice to have you here in my living room. Always a rare treat um, that I can catch someone in person for these these interviews. So I saw that you were calling what I think is both of our home dances. I don't know how to pluralize that. <laughs> we both, I think, uh, had formative years at the Montpelier Contra Dance. Is that right? Definitely, yeah. And how was your gig last night? It was great. We had a, a full hall for most of the evening. Um, lots of enthusiastic new dancers and old timers. Um, like you said, I, I having grown up in, in here in Burlington, done a lot of dancing in Montpelier, coming back here always feels a little bit like going home and I see lots of old friends. So it's always a, a fun dance to call. That's great. 
Well, again, I feel lucky that you had a little bit of time when you're on the home front to, to stop by. Um, well, we uh, spent some time together when we were both kind of just learning to call in the Mad Robin Callers Collective. Um, but it's been a while, and, and I don't know if I ever just sat down and got like the whole story of your beginnings and how you got involved with this kind of um, traditional dance. And I know you're involved in in other aspects of the traditional dance and music world. So would you mind just kind of giving a little introduction? Yeah, sure. So my, my introduction to folk dance was actually through performance, um, which is a, a bit of a funny way to, to come into this world. Um, I had, as a kid, really loved theater. I went to theater summer camps and things. And so some of my friends from, from those activities were involved in this group, Folk Kids of Vermont, um, based here in Burlington, that did performances of traditional American folk dance, contras and squares, uh, in, in period costume, picture like Little House on the Prairie, long dresses and, and straw bonnets for the girls and knee breeches and flat caps and suspenders for the boys. And that, that group uh, performed locally, but also did these international cultural exchange trips. So at age 13, I was going and, and performing contras and squares for school kids in Thailand, which was a, a whole other, yeah, we could talk about that for a long time, but that was my, that was my introduction to contra dancing. And I didn't really discover the world of, of modern social contra dancing for years after that. And, and when I did, it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, cause, cause dancing for performance is really different. You have to think about everybody has to do exactly the same thing at the same time. The lines have to be perfectly straight. Otherwise it looks like a mess. Um, you, you know, from the caller's perspective, from the stage, looking at a, a hall full of people contra dancing often looks like chaos. Um, so it took, it took me a while to relax when I started going to contra dances and, and just have fun and be open to, to flourishes and improvisation. Um, but even starting pretty early on in folk kids, uh, after the first couple of years as a, as a dancer, as a participant in the group, um, I, as I got a little older into being a teenager, I started helping with some of the teaching of the new kids. Uh, and there was actually a, a sort of subset of the group that went on a teaching trip to Russia in 2001. Um, we left our costumes behind and we just, we went to some schools and cultural centers and taught workshops. And so that was my first real, uh, dose of, what it's like teaching this dance and bringing it to people who've never done it before. And it was so much fun. Uh, I guess that's sort of where I caught the, caught the calling bug. Um, I, I went to college at Wesleyan in, in Connecticut and got involved with the, the student run contra dance there. Uh, and once a semester we had a, a night that was all student bands and callers. And so I was one of a couple of, of student callers and, that's where I did my first sort of mainstream modern contra dance calling. Um, really enjoyed that too. And so then when I was living back here in Burlington after college um, and 
got wind of what you were doing with the the Mad Robins Callers Collective, I thought this sounds like a great idea. Um, for for folks who who aren't familiar with it, this was a I think a fantastic idea um, of getting a a cohort of new and newish callers who would get together and practice together and and try things out and give each other feedback. And then we ran our own dance series so that we all had a chance to to practice with actual dancers and didn't have to call a full evening. We we got to share. So each person was only calling a couple of dances and and we had someone assigned for each dance to to take notes and, and share back afterwards. And that was just a really great learning experience for all of us. Yeah, I guess I've I've been calling ever since I I lived in in Boston for a few years in New York City. I'm now in Western Mass, and I've I've been uh, calling in in all of those places. That's wonderful, you know. And I hadn't I hadn't ever really thought about you starting out as, you know, doing contra dances or or the kind of dances that you now call, but doing them as a performance. What was it like to kind of discover this <laughs> <laughs> this alternate this parallel universe where people just did that for for fun? Yeah, you know, I I don't know it was if it was the first time, but I have a distinct memory of folk kids went to the Old Songs Festival, and I remember going to the the big contra dance hall and just kind of having my mind blown, like oh. This is this is what people do for country dancing outside of the little bubble of this this funny little performing group that I've been part of. This is this is intimidating, but also looks like a lot of fun. Um, and and yeah, I, I I never looked back from there. Yeah, and it's such an an interesting um, it's an interesting sequence thinking about what was social dance to begin with and then going through this this phase of you know performing the the folk dance as a way often to kind of keep it keep it alive i mean you see this in like tons of different traditions i mean like river dance um you know lots of different celtic traditions are these dance forms have made it to a performance you know space but is still really based in like a, a social experience yeah and and the the dances we were doing for performance were you know based what we'd call chestnuts you know we were doing opera reel and the virginia reel and and the lancers quadrille um these these classic old dances and and some some new ones written in that style um but yeah i, I feel like i my sort of learning journey of contra dancing in some ways is a sort of sped up historical journey of you know not many people today can say they first learned dancing old-fashioned you know proper dances and and only later learned improper dances and and ones that you know borrow the figures that modern contra dancing borrows um Right. I mean, certainly no one of like your age, which, you know, <laughs> yeah, just exa sort of, exactly. is it safe to say we're both like millennials, I guess? Yeah. Are we elder millennials now at Some, this point? Something like that. <laughs> so. And, and, and dancing to, to old, old New England and Quebecois tunes as well. Um, and we had a, we had a great band in that group. We had, I didn't really realize at the time how lucky we were to, 
we were traveling with a with a four piece live band through Thailand and and Russia and Vietnam, lugging around a hammer dulcimer and a keyboard and. <laughs> That's amazing and. Yeah, I don't know if you want to go into it more, but um, do you have any any memories of kind of how your performances were received in these in these different places where you traveled? I don't think they knew what hit them, really. I mean, I'm I don't know what they were told in advance about what this these American kids performing dance were going to be doing. I don't know if they expected us to be doing modern American dance or, or what they even would think that that would be. But, um, yeah, they, they were generally very enthusiastic, but I think, you know, we were just so new and different. Um, and a lot, a lot of the places we would go would be, we'd perform for them. They'd perform for us we'd do an audience participation dance. We'd get them up doing a circle mixer and then they do an audience participation. We'd, we'd do a, a, a traditional Thai dance as best we could. And, um, yeah, it's, we were all having fun. I it's between the language barrier and also being a, being a kid at the time. I, I feel like if I, could be a fly on the wall now, I'd probably have a very different perspective on on what those trips were like and the, those cross-cultural conversations. But such, such a wonderful thing to do. And do you feel like those roots of your experience are, are still shaping, you know, who you are as a, as a dancer and a caller today? I do. Yeah. I think as a dancer, I still, I've, I've relaxed a lot. But I, but I still have some of the, you know, we, we drilled on how to, how to swing and how to have good, strong lines. And, and some of that is, is ingrained in me. And I do think makes me a, a better dancer overall and one who pays attention to the whole set. Because again, when you're performing, you have to be watching and coordinating with what everyone else in the set is doing. And I think that helps me as a dancer and as a caller that that set awareness is, is hugely important. Um, and then, yeah, the, you know, the fact that I started little bits of, of teaching and, and calling and prompting from, from a very, from very early on in my, in my dancing path I feel like that's just meant that it's been part of me and part of my, how I exist in the dancing world. You know, in, in some cases we actually, for the, for performance, we all had the dances memorized, but we would have someone standing up at a mic calling just to give that sense in the performance. And that was me for, for a couple of the dances. And so that, getting the rhythm and and getting used to, you know, giving the calls a couple beats before the, the, the figure's actually supposed to start. You know, I, I got that sort of built into my, my muscle memory early so that when I really started calling for, for public community dances later, that part I didn't have to worry about that. I already knew. Yeah. I, that totally makes sense that you, so, so it must've been a, like a fairly 
intuitive step into leading more modern style yeah. contra dancing. Yeah, and I I really remember it's it's so fun to just reminisce a little bit about the Mad Robins and I don't I don't remember what year we started or when you came back, but I think think we were was our dance series already up and running or were you part of starting the series? I think it was right around the beginning. It was like 2010 yeah. right around then. Yeah. Yeah, and it was such a wonderful convergence of people who were you know, kind of just in the same place, knew a little bit about how to do this thing, wanted some some community and and support and kind of structure to to develop the collar skills. We were so lucky that Luke Donforth was around and Peter Johnson and you know, all, all the wonderful Robins. Um, and I remember when when you reached out because I didn't start dancing until after I I moved home from college, so we had not crossed paths in the dance world yet but I just remember being like oh my gosh I'm so excited that this person is here bringing so much so much experience even though I I don't think I ever totally knew about your performing life as Mm -hmm. as a kid too Uh, but you were just already so so capable and ready to to jump up at the mic and get things going um do you have other kind of memories of your beginnings, you know, calling for modern dances and what that learning journey was like? I remember starting out having trouble finding repertoire, you know, not not having grown up contra dancing and not having a lot of social connections to other callers. Um, you know, it was it was finding dances in in books and online and I remember it it took me a while and and most of the dances that I called in those you know back in college I don't call anymore I don't think they're actually very good um some some exceptions but it's definitely you know that's something that I don't know that we talk about a lot as callers is where you where you get your dances from when you're when you're just starting feel like once once you get a sort of critical mass then you know you add things and you pick things in and out of rotation over time but there's a there's a hurdle there um i definitely i remember those those student caller nights for for the college dances being being pretty nervous and and making a lot of mistakes but also I was among friends. The The organizers were my friends. The dancers were my friends. And so the stakes were pretty low. And that, that felt like an, a pretty a, a good supportive environment for, for getting started, as, as did the, the Mad Robins. You know, again, it makes such a difference to have that supportive community around you. Because getting up there and, and taking the responsibility of being a caller is risky. And can be scary because there's all all these people depending on you and if you if you mess up like the whole dance breaks down <laughs> like there 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 are high consequences yes yeah uh and it's true the the way the mad robin callers dance was structured 
the fact that it was very publicly a dance that was run by people who were learning to call. And because we all shared time at that mic, that meant we would also all spend time on the dance floor in the course of an evening. So there just had this nice equalizing effect and, and it just felt like people were in on the whole process, even if they were just coming, coming to the dance. Um, and I think that was a, yeah, a, a rare gift that we, that we had. Yeah. Um, and so you've just, you've continued to, to do this thing, to, to call, to dance, to be involved in, um, in the community in a lot of different ways, which I want to hear all about, but, um, you know, what's, what's kept your interest? I think, honestly, it's seeing the, seeing the community that exists around this dancing and seeing how much it means to people and looking back and seeing how many of the close friendships and relationships in my life have come from this community. I want to do whatever I can to support it and help it grow and thrive. And whether that's whatever combination of dancing, calling, organizing, advocating, this, these people and this, this community mean so much to me. Um, you know, I, I don't, especially in the last couple of years, you know, in, in the pandemic, there weren't that many dances happening and, and coming out of it. A lot of dances have been requiring masks, which is, makes all kinds of sense. And I found, I really struggle to dance with a mask on. It's hard. It's, it's a lot less fun. And so I haven't been doing as much dancing. I've been doing a lot, much more calling than dancing. Um, still organizing as well. And we, we can talk about, about that. Um, but I, I remember early on going to dances and seeing folks who were there but weren't dancing much, maybe at all. They were hanging out on the sides. They were chatting. They were sitting up on the stage. And I thought, what are they doing we're here to dance. That's the fun part. And and I've realized since then that it, it's so much more than than the dancing itself. It really is this whole community. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, what, what are some different ways that you have uh, found joy and meaning not dancing <laughs> and not calling what, what other parts of the ecosystem are important to you or are you involved in? Yeah. I mean, so starting with the, the dance in, in college, I've, I've found myself pretty much everywhere I've lived falling into, to some kind of dance organizing role. Um, it's, this is, this is, I guess what I do with the, the activities and, and groups that are important to me. So the, the dance in college, the Mad Robins. Then when I, when I moved to Boston, I got involved with, uh, with Bida. I was on the, the board there for a while. Also helping organize the, the JP gender free dance, um, in, in New York city, helping out with the village Contra, um, which is sort of the sibling dance to, to JP also in the, the LCFD gender free queer dance umbrella. Um, and more recently, I've gotten more involved in 
that umbrella organization and putting on our, our dance camp weekends. The LCFD community has ended up being really important to me as a queer dance space and somewhere that a lot of my closest friends um, dance. And over time, I've seen that community grow and change a lot in some really exciting ways. And that is, that is continuing. Uh, we, we didn't have dance camps over the pandemic. We just brought them back this past summer. Uh, we had our first camp at Pinewoods camp and brought in a whole bunch of new excited, uh, dancers to, to our community through that. And that's, I, I want to do more of that. We're, we're planning for, for two camp weekends next year. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to see where that goes. That's really exciting. Can you say a little bit more about LCF? Uh, I'm not going to, I feel like <laughs> I can, Lavender County Folk Dancers? La- Lavender Country and Folk Dancers, Lavender. LCFD. Not, not the easiest acronym to, <laughs> to remember, but yeah, it's, um, it's a it's an umbrella organization for gender free and queer focused dance groups. Um, a handful of local dances as well as our our dance camp weekends. These were some of the first dances to both create a an intentional safe space for gay and lesbian queer later also trans dancers, and also as part of that to use gender-free role terminology. And, you know, I think we can, we can take some, some credit for spreading that to, to much more of the, of the Contra world in recent years. Um, and, you know, some, a, a conversation that we've had in the community as that, you know, as gender-free role terms have spread is, is there still a need for us? You know, have, have we won? Can we, can we pack up and go home? And, and the answer is no, there, there is still a need for, for this community that it, it was never just about the role terms. It's so much more than that. It's about a place where queer folks, where trans folks can feel like this is our dance space and this is where we can bring our full selves and you know our our straight cis allies are are so welcome and we love having them there but the the core of it is a a dance community that is by us and for us and designed for our needs. And there's, there's absolutely still a need for that. And I, you know, I see that in the fact that young new queer dancers who, especially, you know, in, in parts of New England have a wealth of, of opportunities for, for dancing, almost all of which don't use gendered role terms are still excited to come to to queer dances. There is something different and special about that. That's wonderful. Neighbor, balance and swing. 
Face across and circle left three places. Swing your partner on the side. In long lines, go forward and back. Two robins chain across, pull by. Right to your partner, balance here. Pull by, left pull by, right to your partner, balance. Pull by, left by your neighbor, new neighbor, you balance. And swing. Circle to the left, three places. Your partner swing. I guess I guess I'll step back and say, you know, how has your your role grown within that organization, and what were you able to bring into that space given all all your experience? Yeah, so I started out as a just on the the organizing committee for the the Jamaica Plain dance, um, and then took on the role of booking bands and callers for that dance, which was a lot of fun and, and got helped me get to know more people and make more, more connections, which was then helpful as for me growing as a caller as well. It's all of course interconnected. Um, and then at some point I took on being the, the camp registrar for some of our camp weekends. So just running the, the registration process. Uh, did that for a couple of camps. And then coming out of the pandemic, there was an opening for for someone to to step up and really make the the new weekend happen in the new location. And I decided that was what I wanted to do. So I was the, I don't know, chair of the camp committee. We don't we don't have a lot of official titles, but um I I did a bunch of the the planning of the of the programming and figuring out things with the venue. Um, I was really excited. S- Sam Weiler uh, sort of made the initial connection with with Pinewoods, but having volunteered on crew at Pinewoods and having been on on staff for for CDSS programs there, I I know the facility really well and I know the LCFD community really well. And I was so excited to bring those together. A lot of longtime LCFD folks haven't attended other dance weekends or, or weeks, hadn't ever been to Pinewoods. That was a new experience for them. And, you know, Pinewoods has such a special place in my heart. I was, I couldn't wait to share it with, with these friends. And at the same time, there were folks who were, were longtime Pinewoods attendees at, at various other weeks and were excited for this, this new program, this new queer focused program to, to be happening there. I was a little nervous about how these different groups would blend together, uh, especially not having had a, an LCFD weekend in, in several years. Um, but everyone was just so excited to be there and so happy to be dancing together. Um, it was, it was one of the best dance weekends I've, I've ever been to. That's amazing. Congratulations. And is it continuing? Yes, yes. We will we will be back at Pinewoods in June 2024. Uh, and we're also going to have a weekend uh, in the fall next year in October at Ashokan. Uh, that's, that'll be another new venue for us. 
That's so exciting. And I love what you reflected that the the origins of the Lavender Country and Folk Dancers community, you know, was a safe and supportive space for LGBTQ dancers. Um, and that out of that space came, you know, some new traditions, some new practices that have really rippled out into, you know, the dance world at large, um, especially, you know, you mentioned changing role terminology to, to be gender free. I'm curious if you see, if you see other elements that, you know, have been allowed to, to develop or kind of emerge within those queer dance spaces, but maybe are, you know, valuable and relevant for anyone everywhere. Yeah. I think, you know, going beyond, like I said, it's, it was never just about the terminology, right? There's also a flexibility about which role you dance and a playfulness of, of dancing both roles of swapping back and forth. Um, if and when you want to, you know, no, no one's ever required to do that. Um, but even there, there's a, there's a tradition that has sort of come and gone, but has been pretty steady in, in LCFD, particularly for the English country dancing of lining up without a partner. You just go and join the line on one side or the other, and whoever you end up standing across from is your partner for that dance. And I really like that dynamic some of the time. Other times I like to to choose and, and you know, dance with my friends or, or go and find someone new to, to dance with. Um, but I, I like that, that little tradition and I would love to, to see more of that. I think not to, not to overgeneralize, but I think it's always helpful to remember that a lot of the ways that we dance, a lot of the traditions that we have and the assumptions that we make don't need to be set in stone. And we, we can change them. We can play with them. And I think part of having a, a queer-focused dance space is about questioning assumptions, about questioning tradition. That, that, and this is true not just in dance. This is true in, in all sorts of queer communities. That once you question some of the basic assumptions about about gender and sexuality, that opens the door to questioning a lot of other assumptions that, that might also be outdated and harmful and, and worth, worth some, some critical, uh, re reevaluation. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a lot of that perspective that can still be of value far beyond dance role terms. Absolutely. And I just find it so fascinating. I mean, I, I, this, this topic of the, um, flexibility, the dynam, dynamism, is that a word? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the dynamism of, um, of tradition and uh, that so often that word tradition is sometimes used to imply some kind of, you know, steady through, through line. And it is also inherently changeable, adaptable, yeah. um, to suit 
and and there are there are traditions and there is there are parts of the culture of LCFD that have also needed to be questioned and reevaluated you know as there have been more trans dancers there have been some hard conversations and and changes in within the queer dance community about how to truly be open and welcoming and affirming of folks of all genders. And that's, that's been, that's been tough. Important. It's important work. And there's, it seems like a, a lot of willingness on, on the part of the queer dance community to keep, to keep doing that work. Yeah. And, and I think it's because from the very beginning, it was all about being a safe space. It was all about being able to be yourself and the, the desire for anyone who comes to have that safe, authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, noting that it is not only about gender role terms, but that gender role terms is, is something that's um, on, on the minds, I think, of a lot of dancers, callers, organizers, it's, it's a topic in our community right now. And I'm curious to how your experience has been watching that evolve and how you've, you've navigated that, maybe what you've learned being in these multiple roles of dancer, caller, organizer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I started out, everything was gents and ladies all the time. I'm just thinking of you're describing your costumes for for your yeah, kid performances. Absolutely. Very gendered. Yep. Yeah. If if there was any variation, it would be some some people choosing to to call men and women instead. Um, which interest I had a fascinating conversation with Sue Rosen once about how when she was starting out as a caller, men and women was an intentional choice that some callers made to to be more egalitarian and more feminist that it was it was considered a more sort of value neutral uh description rather than the the sort of more that gents and ladies were were more laden terms that came with expectations about how you would behave isn't that fascinating like like tied to class kind of or? I, I don't know but the, you know that you would behave like a lady or behave like a gentleman right I, I as see. opposed to yes. you just are a man or a woman right and that I totally get that and it, it there's some gender essentialism in there that that is also problematic um and then yeah when I started going to to the dances in in Jamaica Plain, I was introduced to the armbands and bare arms terminology, which uh, you know, looking back, is is pretty clunky. But also, I remember really appreciating it. And you know, just aside from the words themselves, the intention behind them, right? That was that was the important part. Um, and I I do even have some some nostalgia for the actual armbands themselves uh though they could get a little 
messy and caught on things. And <laughs> <laughs> right, because the armbands and bare arms was right. There was a you like actually a had a prop that yeah would... uh, some what's that stuff called flagging tape that you would tie around your arm. Um, made it harder to swap roles in the middle of a dance too. <laughs> um, then you know there was larks and, and ravens and then larks and robins and my my dance cards are this complete hodgepodge of of role terms some of them with cross outs and things written in again and you know it's at some point i just stopped updating them and you know partly that was becoming experienced enough as a as a caller that i felt confident just translating on the fly based on whatever my card said um but it, it is an interesting history looking back. I can sort of see when I added a card to my collection based on what the role terms are that are written on it. Um, and I, I, I actually remember at first I had some, some resistance to, to departing from the traditional ladies and gents terms. I, I see and I and I sympathize with people who 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 feel the connection between that and the history of the dance form, you know, these are these are terms that people have been dancing to for many many years. And for me personally, I thought, well, I I don't care. I can be a lady, I can be a gent, it doesn't matter. I like dancing both roles. Those the terms just are feel like arbitrary labels to me. And then I talked to friends who particularly friends who are who are trans and non-binary who said it feels really yucky it feel it makes me feel like I don't want to dance and I thought oh if that if making a tiny change is what makes the difference between someone feeling excluded and feeling welcomed and like they belong how could I possibly say no like that's such an easy change to make and it doesn't hurt me at all. And that was that was really the the big turning point for me. And you know, I already saw them as as arbitrary terms and so, you know, I I don't care. I'll swap out. I'll use whatever terms people people want. Um I I'm intrigued by by positional calling and the and the potential of that. I I'm still honestly a little scared to try it out myself. Um, I, I do a little bit of English calling and it's a whole lot easier there. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a lot of potential there and, and a lot of there's um, I don't remember who wrote it. The, the CDSS pamphlet on positional calling Louise and contract. Siddons. Louise yes. Siddons. Thank you. I really like the way that she, talks about it again it's it's never just about the role terms right the the role terms reflect all of your assumptions about the dancing and you know thinking about about staying how you're staying connected to your partner and which hand you have free which hand you have available um yeah i'm really excited to to learn and experiment and and see where that goes it is so interesting to think about the how language affects behavior. You know, I mean, you, 
I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have that analytical of a mind, but, but just thinking about how just even changing the role terms gave us an entry point to start talking about who danced which role and, and why, you know, just opened up this whole other, yeah, level to, as you said, kind of question yeah. how everything, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so in a similar way, yeah, I think positional calling is just giving, you know, applying this whole new filter to think about, you know, embodiment, awareness of, of your space and, and your, your position, your relation to other dancers and space. It's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. I just love seeing, seeing these conversations develop. Um, I did just because I was thinking about it as you were, as you were talking, you you kind of spoke to this already, but I'm, I was curious if there's anything more, um, as more and more communities started using gender-free terminology, did that change your experience as a, as a dancer at all? Not much personally. Like for, for me, I was never particularly uncomfortable with, with gendered calling. Though I will say these days, I so rarely go to a dance that does have gendered role terms when I do it's a little bit shocking and it takes me a minute to readjust and it it just it reminds me how unnecessary it is mm-hmm. um but no i wouldn't say it's made a whole lot well actually i remember going to a a, con- a contra dance session at the national modern western square dance convention wow which was a trip um but you know it was a, it was a very gendered very traditionally gendered contra space and i was dancing with a friend and i was dancing as the as the lady and i would say every other couple going down the line tried to fix us that happens so much less with non-gendered calling and boy am i glad to see it go Absolutely. Yeah. As a caller, do you, how do you deal with requests for particular terminology for, for using particular terminology? Do you, do you hold a line of only calling gender free? What's the, what are those decisions like? Honestly, in the last few years, I don't know that I have called a dance that, that, used gendered role terms, um, which, you know, I, 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 I exist in the, in the New England bubble. Um, I wouldn't insist on that though. I think, um, periodically when I have called dances that, that are still using ladies and gents, I just make sure to say that anyone can dance any role and just hammer that point as, as many times as I can over the, over the course of the evening. Um, I think if, if anyone asked me to not do that, that would, I would have a problem with that, but I I don't think that that's ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it certainly offers a, again, an opening for conversation and 
and thought. I remember the the first time I I slipped up in reverse, calling a ladies and gents dance, and I said something about Robbins. I thought this is actually a good sign. That's kind of cool. That that's yeah, the, that's the mistake I'm making. <laughs> yeah. So and and all yeah. the dancers knew what I meant anyway. Right. They do. They were fine. So what is your caller life like these days? I know you have talked about what we're all still navigating the sort of coming out of the pandemic years, but what's on the, the docket as a caller and what kind of are you hoping for in the future? Yeah. You know, there, there's always that tension. I want to do more. And, and at the same time, it sure is nice to have weekends at home sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah, I've been I've been doing a fair amount of calling locally, you know, living in Western Mass, where I'm so lucky that there are a lot of dances that are within easy day trip distance. Um a few a few longer longer distance, um, you know, maybe a, a long weekend with a couple of gigs in a few places. Um Last summer, I, I called at Harmony Week at Pinewoods, uh, which was a, a great time. I got to to teach a, a basics of Contra and English country dance class and do some fun comparisons across styles. Yeah, I honestly, more of the same. I'm just having so much fun. That's great. And what's your approach as a caller? You know, what do you what do you think about when you're planning an evening? What do you hope to bring to people? Yeah. Recently what I've I've started saying in my beginner lessons is for me, contradancing is mainly about four things. It's moving together with music and having fun. And if you're doing those four things, then you're doing it right. And, you know, my job is as the caller is to help that happen. So it's figuring out what the level of complexity of dances is that is the right match for the crowd and the level of teaching to go with those dances. Because it's, you sort of... In some ways, those are two sides of, of one equation, right? You can you can you could get any any group to do any dance. It just might take an hour of teaching. Yes. Um. And so, I you know going into a dance, I if it's a dance I've called before, I I usually have some sense of of what the crowd is going to be like. If it's an unfamiliar one one that I haven't been to before, I'll I'll try to get some intel from the organizers or from other folks from that community and put together a program that's my 
my best guess of what's going to be a good fit, but always, always having some in my, some substitutions in my back pocket, uh, some planned out in advance of like, okay, I think I'm going to want to call this dance, but depending on how the couple dances before that go, I might swap it out for this one. Um, and sometimes, almost always, honestly, some amount of reprogramming on the fly just based on how the evening is going. Are the dances running shorter or longer? How big is the crowd? How many newcomers are there? What's the energy level? That's the, to me, that's the crux of the, of the caller's challenge is putting your finger on the, on the pulse of the room and figuring out what's next. What does this crowd want? What do they need? Do they want something that's high energy? Do they want something smooth? Do they want something that's going to stretch their brains a little bit? Do they want to just relax and do something comfortable? And even within one dance, you know, as you're calling, you're scanning the room, you're figuring out, do they have this? Do they need a little bit more prompting? Oh, I saw a couple people missed that long lines. Next time through, I'm, I'm going to prompt that one more time. It's this constant adjustment and dynamic. And I mean, that's, that's the fun part for me. Yeah. I often describe it as being kind of in the middle of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was thinking about this last night, the, the dance I was calling in Montpelier, there were, there were a significant number of new or more pretty new dancers and, it's not even just how many new dancers there are. There are new dancers who bring all sorts of different kinds of energy and you really have to read the energy of the group. Are they gonna, are they new dancers who are gonna want to have a lot of careful coaching and otherwise they're gonna get nervous and they're gonna freeze? Are they new dancers who are just going to throw themselves in and, and have a good time and figure out where they need to go and, and follow the people around them? Are they new dancers who are going to, you know, scream and yell and run around and have a great time, but mess up the dancing for everyone around them, right? There are so many different flavors. And so it's a lot of almost mind reading, it feels like sometimes, of of what does this group need in order to have fun? And does your um, early caller nervous self ever show up or are you pretty, are you pretty comfortable in that um, just kind of living on the edge, trying to knit together all these, these different things? Have you found a way to be comfortable in that space? I'm always a little nervous there's always a little bit of the the sort of is this going to work are people going to have fun are people going to blame me if it goes wrong but it's also it's the nervous that i'm used to and i i know i know that feeling and so if this isn't a contradiction in terms i'm comfortable being nervous like i i know what i'm feeling and i know that it's not going to keep me from doing a good job. It's like, it, that's such a relief to 
to hear. I, I feel exactly the same way. You know, I, there's always a lot of anticipation. There's often moments when I'm like, Ooh, that, that was the wrong choice Yeah, <laughs> in the moment. And the thing that I try to remind myself is no one is expecting you to be perfect. And in fact, when you admit when you make a mistake, when you, when you laugh at yourself, it wins you so much goodwill from the crowd. And it also lets them know it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to laugh at them and move on. Absolutely. Yeah. It helps everyone relax when you can, can convey that. Is there any part of your, um, former folk dance performer self that, uh, comes out when you're when you're at the mic or comes through in your teaching yeah I mean calling is performing right you're you are up on stage you're projecting this this public persona um I've always enjoyed performing I've enjoyed theater I I worked for a little while as a as a public school teacher and you know that's that's performing too it's um, I enjoy putting on that, that role for the evening. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what about other kind of nuts and bolts things? Do you have ways that you engage with musicians when you're like walking in for the first time working with the band that you've, you've, you've just met? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always try to, you know, it, it can be hard in the, you know, people are setting up and sound checking, but I, I try to always have a conversation with the band about what kind of communication they want from me. You know, how, how do they like to, to match tunes to dances? What, what kinds of descriptors will be helpful for them? Do they just want to see the dance card? Do they want me to tell them, that I want something smooth or something bouncy or a march or a jig or a reel. Um, do they want to know, oh, there's a, there's a balance at the top of B1. Um, and that's usually a really productive conversation. Uh, I, I check in of, you know, do you, do you like to know if there's three more times through the dance? And if, especially if it's a bigger band, who should I make sure gets that signal? Right. Um, recently I've been asking how many tunes do you play in a set typically? Because I try to pay attention to that as a caller when I'm timing how long I'm running the dance and how many more times I want to go through. Um, or, you know, maybe if I know that they're playing, that they have another tune they want to play and I'm thinking we're not going to run the dance too much longer, I might signal to them like, Hey, if you've got another tune, you might want to switch to it now. Yes. It's it's good to take care of your musicians. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you ever, does it ever feel lonely being the caller? It's a good question. It can. I think especially the less familiar the context is. If it's a dance that I haven't been to before, far, you know, further from home, I don't know the organizers. I don't know the other dancers. I may not know the band either. It can be. Yeah. 
when you're dan when you're at a your your home dance or somewhere where you know a lot of people, you're making eye contact with dancers on the floor. You're you're noticing what's go you're more just plugged in to the to the group. And so you know it can it can be a little distant. But at the same time, even at those dances where you don't know anybody, it can almost feel even better to when you feel when you know that you're helping them have a good time. It's like, I don't even know you, and yet I can come in and play this this supportive role for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's always the difference. I mean the band the band might not know anyone, but they probably know each other. You know, they yeah. sort of have a built-in team. So sometimes you're a, you're a team of one, but then your role is to is to bring everyone together. So yeah, and 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 like we were saying, you know, communicating with them. If you can get on the same, if you can feel like you're on the same team with the band, that that makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Then it gets really good. Not that 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 sounds like you're like setting yourselves up in opposition with the dancers, but <laughs> that's I was just going to say mean. on the same team as the band Who's and then the get, team? get all the dancers also on your team. Then you're cooking. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I have a few questions that I usually end with, but is there anything, anything glaring that, that I've like missed or skipped over? I think, you know, the, in addition to exploring positional calling and and other you know fun new things the the other thing i'm really excited about leaning into more is is continuing to build tips on on safety and and community dancing and and better support for each other into my teaching and calling that's something that's really important to me and i i do it a lot i you know for for a lot of the dances that i teach i'll at some point along the way i'll say so in this dance here's a moment where you have a great opportunity to really support your neighbor in doing this or you know in this dance notice that it will go a lot smoother if you put your arm this way around your partner and I hear that people really appreciate that. You know, people will come up to me after the after the dance and say that. And so I, yeah, I just, I, I want to continue to find more ways to do that because the collar is not just there to teach the figures. The collar is there to, well, to do all sorts of things. But one of them is to help people be better dancers and and better partners and better neighbors on the dance floor. And I feel like that's a a unique opportunity that I that I enjoy and, and want to explore more. Yeah, do you do you think about that in terms of of leadership? Uh just the the desire to have an impact that's beyond just just teaching the moves yeah i it's a type of leadership i think it's a it's a type of 
contributing to to making the dance community that you want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like you've described multiple different ways in which you are you are doing that, uh, you know, as a caller, as a as an organizer. Um, I wonder, too, how much as as someone who is in the queer community and then also is a dancer, did those spaces overlap or blend together, you know? I I recently listened to your interview with with Chris Ricciotti and and he talked about the feeling of initially feeling like there was his his gay community and his dance community and there was a a real wall between those and very slowly gradually and intentionally working to to bridge that and and bring those together and I, I am so grateful. I feel like I benefit from the work of Chris and folks like him who, who made it possible to be an out queer folk dancer and not think twice about it. And, you know, many of, many of my closest friends are out queer folk dancers and that community has has meant so much to me and that's and not even just a lot of them are not particularly connected to LCFD they they go to other dances they you know maybe they're country dancers maybe they're Morris dancers and maybe they're queer maybe they're not queer but it's it doesn't feel like there's this divide that needs to be bridged. And I feel so lucky to be living in a time and place where that's true. Absolutely. And I love everything you're saying about just find finding all the different ways that you can help build a community that you want to see and that, that you want to be a part of. And, and I feel very lucky to have gotten to cross paths with you and, and see what's possible in that way. And I'm really glad that you're, that you're out there doing everything that you're doing. Well, I, I feel like I've learned a lot from you. I, I definitely, when I think about the, the caller persona that I want to emulate the, the combination of warmth and precision that I see in in your calling and and have for many years has has definitely been something I've looked up to. My gosh, I'm I'm very honored <laughs> and feel feel the same way about you. So, um, ah, warm moment. <laughs> um, so I have three questions that I usually close with. Um, the first is to talk a little bit about your your dance notation. How do you write down and keep and organize your dances that you, your dance collection? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a pen and paper index card caller. Uh, I, I tried having them on uh, as, as electronic documents or spreadsheets. I tried a few different things and 
nothing nothing was able to recreate the the experience of being able to lay out my cards and rearrange them and look at the sequence um and so that's that's what I've stuck with and I I've I love also seeing you know for colors who do use cards how they keep them organized how they how they group them you know from easy to hard or based on feel uh I these days I I group mine based on sort of distinctive figures so I have like all of my wave based dances and my hay based dances and the ones with petronellas in them um and then like I said before they're this sort of great historical hodgepodge of of role terms as well yeah I love that some archive someday is gonna have have a heyday with that. <laughs> um, and do you keep them in a box? Do you have? Yeah. A... Yep. yep. Well, an old, old cigar box. Nice. Just the right size. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and how, how are you finding dances these days? Are you still adding to your collection? Definitely still adding to my collection. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll go to a dance and, and, you know, there'll there'll be a dance that I really like, and I'll I'll write it down if I remember it, or I'll ask the caller to to send it to me. Um, sometimes I'll realize that there's a gap in my collection that I, I you know I want a dance that has this figure or that does this, and so I'll I'll just look online at some of the big indexes and see if I can find something that fits. Um, and also write my own dances and have a lot of fun doing that. Well, we didn't even touch on that. Do you do you want to say a little bit more? Um, I haven't I haven't written a ton, but I I do I do enjoy it. I I enjoy thinking about the mechanics of of how figures can fit together in slightly unexpected ways. There's that 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 fertile ground of oh, this is different and interesting but not so much that it will really throw people and break the dance. Um, I like playing around with that. Nice. I did. I'm going to have to collect some of your dances. I don't know if I have any. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. And then do you have any pre or post gig rituals, things that you kind of do to get ready or, or wind down? Not, not much. I try to try to make sure I've eaten. That's pretty important. I I had a gig recently that I got to late and I didn't have time to eat dinner. Um, Fortunately, one of the band members had an extra banana. Otherwise, it would have been a pretty rough evening. (laughs) Um, Yeah, eating, staying hydrated, making sure I have the right layers so that I can be the right temperature. Turns out the temperature on stage can be very different from the temperature down on the dance floor when you're not dancing entirely yes um and then last is if you know are you an introvert or an extrovert on on balance i'd say i'm an introvert the the way i understand it is like when i'm depleted and need to recharge do i do that on my own or do i do that by connecting with other people and definitely on my own it's the you know we were talking about performance and a lot of performers I think are introverts you know you you have your your public persona up on stage 
and then you're off stage and there's you you go back into your into your shell <laughs> yes yep that's kind of how it goes for me but it's interesting that uh, you know i've talked to people who are introvert extrovert or anywhere in between um but i'm just always curious that how it plays into the role of someone who is choosing to kind of be in charge of a room, a room full of people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's the, it's the classic introvert performer thing where you find it a lot easier to be on stage in front of a microphone before a hundred people than you do to actually try to, you know, make small talk with a small group of people. Yes. Yes. Terrifying. <laughs> uh, well, Ben, thanks so much for dropping by. and Thanks uh, for having me over. Yeah. I hope we meet on a dance floor sometime soon. Me too. Thanks so much to Ben for talking with me. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at cdss.org slash podcasts. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and it's produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Ozachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit cdss.org podcasts for more info. Happy dancing. The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.